uh, after God has created everything, he's put Adam and Eve in the garden. He comes to Adam and Eve and says, let me tell you why I created you. Let me put, tell you why I put you here on the earth. Let me tell you what your job description is. And I would suggest this is just as true of us as it was of them. He said, you're here to do two things. This is Genesis 1.28. First thing I want you to do is fill the earth with my images. Second thing I want you to do is to subdue the earth. Now, that word subdue is literally the Hebrew word kabosh. And in that context, it means to make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. And so that's what we're here for, to fill the earth with God's images and to bring flourishing to those images. Welcome to the 9 to 5 podcast conversations with Christians about lives of faith, integrity, and excellence at work. They are from Christians in Commerce, a ministry supporting and encouraging men and women to be Christ in their workplaces. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, this is Steve Becker, and today I'm talking with Hugh Welcho, who's the Executive Director for the Institute on Faith, Work, and Economics. Thank you. It's great to be on with you today. So, Hugh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do at Focus On. Yes, basically our emphasis is try to reach out to evangelical Christians, mainly in the United States, although we're doing more and more stuff uh, internationally now, uh, to help them understand how to integrate their faith and their work and the purpose that economics plays in that whole uh, transaction. Great. Uh, so today what we wanted to do, what got, sparked our interest is you written a number of things um, about peace and shalom specifically, and we want to explore that a little bit more. So men and women are feeling more and more physically and emotionally exhausted in their work environments. And uh, as executive director and in your writings, what are some of the factors that you think you discover is driving this problem? I think one of the real big pieces, and this is something that's kind of gotten lost to the church, I think, in the last hundred years or so. It always hasn't been true, but really last hundred, maybe 120 years, it's gotten to be a real problem. In fact, I often talk about it's the besetting sin of the church over the last hundred years. Um, to, to kind of set it up, I often go and speak at Christian colleges, and I'll go in. The first thing I'll ask them, I'll ask your listeners the same thing. Think about what you did yesterday. What percent of it was secular and what percent was spiritual? Then I'll go around the room and ask a few of them. And, and interestingly, I've never had anyone say 100% spiritual. They always give me some mix of the two. The highest I've ever gotten, one young lady said, I'll give myself 80% spiritual because I did my Bible study in the dorm last night. And then I'll suggest uh, um, a couple of verses from uh, the Apostle Paul. For example, he tells the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Then I say, how can you justify what you just said, and the reality is they can't. That as Christians, we're supposed to do everything with a view toward the toward the spiritual. Everything we do is supposed to be spiritual. Yet in the church today, we were kind of locked into the spiritual secular divide, and we think the secular stuff's not stuff that's really bad. It's stuff like my work, right? It's just stuff that God doesn't really care anything about. And nothing can be farther from the truth. The scripture tells us very clearly that uh, God cares about everything we do. One of my favorite preachers uh, is a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and he wrote a sermon uh, back in, 19, excuse me, in 1874. And he said this, To a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment. It's a vestiment to him. He sits down at his meal, it's a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor and therein exercises the office of the 
priesthood. His breath is incense. His life is sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in his divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is secular and this is um, <clears throat> sacred, to my mind, is diametrically opposed to the teachings of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. And we need to take that to heart because I think this is one of the real big problems uh, in the church and in, with Christians today. And it, and it really makes it very difficult for us to really integrate our whole lives around the gospel. You know, what uh, strikes me is a lot of people in facing the demands of work and other responsibility in human, uh, home and community they try to talk about finding balance in their lives. Experts talk a lot about work-life balance as being the key. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, you read a lot about it. In fact, there's a whole industry that's kind of built up around that. And I think really they're going the long, wrong direction. Because like I said, I think the first step is understanding that everything we do, we do to the glory of God. And then, and then really the second step needs to be to begin to think about why do we work? And if you ask people that, and I've asked a lot of people that over the last seven or eight years that we've been doing this at the Institute, uh, they'll give you all sorts of answers like um, uh, to put food on the table, uh, uh, to pay the rent, uh, you, know, you know, on and on, put my kids through college. And we really don't get past the immediate needs. We really need to get past that and, and understand the long term. What is the basis of our work? What's the why for our work? It's interesting if we go back to the book of Genesis, you look at the first chapter, and we read about the creation story, and, and, and this interesting thing, there on the sixth day, uh, after God has created everything, he's put Adam and Eve in the garden, he comes to Adam and Eve and says, let me tell you why I created you. Let me put, tell you why I put you here on the earth. Let me tell you what your job description is. And I would suggest this is just as true of us as it was of them. He said, you're here to do two things. This is Genesis 1.28. First thing I want you to do is fill the earth with my images. Second thing I want you to do is to subdue the earth. Now, that word subdue is literally the Hebrew word kabosh. And in that context, it means to make the earth an incredible place for human beings to flourish. And so that's what we're here for, to fill the earth with God's images and to bring flourishing to those images. And that hasn't changed. But what did change is sin came into the world. And as fallen creatures, we're unable to fulfill that mandate. But those of us who've tasted the grace of Jesus Christ have been put back into the position of Adam and Eve to understand who God is and what he wants us to do. And this is what he wants to do. I often say this passage in Genesis 128, that if you think about it in the context of the gospel, the gospel is a call to a redemptive lost and forfeited calling to fill the earth with images and subdue it. Now, we have to change the images part a little bit because of the fall and we still live in a broken world. We have to say to fill the world with redeemed images. But see, the problem today is as Christians and, and with the church, we talk a lot about that part, right? That's evangelism, that's discipleship, that's church, that's family. But the subdue the earth part has kind of gotten lost, and that's just as important as as to fill the earth with images part. So we have to understand both of those and understand that's the purpose of our work. And once we begin to get a grasp on that and we understand that filters in to everything we do, one of the problems we often talk to people about is they have a sense that 
their work is a just a platform to share the gospel, right? It's just a platform to do evangelism. We said, no. I mean, you know, any, of course it is a platform to share the, uh, the, the gospel. I mean, trip to the grocery store is a platform to share uh, the good news to anybody that wants to hear it. But there's intrinsic value. The subdue the work part is just as important. And there's there's intrinsic value in the work you do, whether you're, you know, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and you're changing diapers or you're in front of a spreadsheet, you know, for eight hours during a day and no one else sees what you're doing. There's still intrinsic value to God for the work itself. And that's a piece I think we miss a lot of times, and it helps us really begin to understand more about our work and how to do our work when we grasp that concept. We'd like to take a moment and tell you about Working for Our Father, a four-part video series created to help you and others align your careers with God's greater purpose. Learn more and check out a preview at workingforourfather.com. It's designed to adapt to any situation and be done over four one-hour sessions. Great for small groups and a wonderful way to kick off a good conversation with your coworkers. So it sounds a lot like uh, the need to integrate everything into this one mission that we have to love and serve God is really a key to what you're saying. And this work-life balance is more of a myth than a, than a reality. So uh, is there anything in particular that stands out that's important for us to be able to achieve this integrity of our life? Yes, I, I think it's very important to understand. Um, it's really not work-life balance it's as much as integrating everything together. One of the problems we have, we have a tendency to silo things away kind of on their own. That's one of the things we do at work. We're very good in our culture about kind of siloing things off, partitioning them off. Um, Oz Guinness, in a book that he wrote called The Call, almost probably almost 20 years ago now, he said our primary calling as Christians is, is all the same, and that calling is to become disciples of Christ. But then he goes on and says out of that primary calling flow four secondary callings. And he said it's in those secondary callings where, where our discipleship for Christ really works itself out in the real world. This is what Paul says when he says work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And he says those four secondary callings are our call to family, our call to church, our call to community, and our call to vocation. So, so we're all called to the family, and, and that role changes from time to time. We start out as a son or a daughter. We become parents. We become grandparents. I'm in that stage now. It's a great place to be. Uh, but that, that role changes, but we still have a calling to the family. And, and a lot of the work we do, of course, is unpaid work, we do in our families. Likewise, we have a calling to the church. All of us, not just pastors and missionaries, all of us are called to go to the church. The Bible makes it very clear. And use our gifts and our talents to edify the body of Christ when we were together. And then we have a call to community. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and then last, we have a call to work, to go out and, and, and work and do things in, in our vocations. So the time we spend during our day or week is going, in, in those four areas, is going to change. And it's going to change over time. There are parts uh, of your, or seasons of your life when you're not going to spend a lot of family time. When you're in college, you may come home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, uh, 
But but then you get married and your family time expands and you get kids, expands a little more. Then you become empty nesters and it shrinks back again. There are only 24 hours in a day, so, so you can see that the time we spend in these four different areas of calling expand and contract depending upon our season of life. But we're always called to all four of these things. In fact, the Bible calls the work, paid and unpaid, that we do in these four areas, it calls stewardship. And um, and it's very important. So it's, it's a way to kind of begin to think about not necessarily balance, but integration. How do we how do we kind of not silo these things off, but see them all as is what God has called us to do? And if we you've written a lot about the Old Testament concept of shalom and the importance of understanding that and knowing where we're headed or what we're being called to do. Now our modern ears think of it more as a greeting, meaning peace or lack of conflict, but from what I've seen what you've written, is the biblical view a lot different than this? And if so, how would you contrast it? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things that I would say, and once again, you go back to Genesis then in, in the very beginning, you know, God created everything around us for a specific reason, and that specific reason is so that it might glorify him. So so the entire creation, like the uh, like a great, a great painting, reflects the glory of the painter, uh, the creation reflects the glory of God, and as part of the creation, we're supposed to do that in our work as well. We're supposed to reflect that glory. And so if you think, okay, so if God put us here to glorify him, when is he most glorified? And I would argue that he's most glorified when his creation works like it's supposed to. Yet we know, as we said earlier, because of the fall, things don't work like they were supposed to. And there's this true sense that Deep down inside of every human being, there's a scholar named Jonathan Pennington that's written a bunch of stuff for us. And he, he wrote one time, he said, all human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, we found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, both individually and corporately. C.S. Lewis says, how would I know a line is crooked unless I'd seen a straight line? See, there's something deep down inside of us that, that understands um, that there's something missing, that there's something wrong here. And what I would suggest is that thing is peace or what the Old Testament scholars and prophets called shalom. Um, the best definition I've seen for this word shalom, I mean, we say <clears throat> typically in the Old Testament we translate as the word peace, far too weak a translation. Uh, the best translation I've come across is by a guy named Cornelius Plantica, and he wrote in one of his books, he said this, he said, shalom is the webbing together of God humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, the full flourishing of human life in all respects, just as God intended. It's interesting, there's perfect shalom in the garden. And there'll be perfect shalom in the new heaven and new earth. But we know because of the fall and because of sin, that this, this beautiful shalom that God made, think of it as this incredible tapestry, has just become unraveled. So part of what our calling to do, interesting enough, in those four areas of family, church, uh, vocation, and community, is to go reweave shalom go back into the to the relationships that we have, to the work that we have, in some way move things back a little closer to the way they were supposed to be. Understanding we'll never have perfect shalom until Jesus comes back and restores it. But our job in the meantime is to is to put that back the best we can.
So from the Old Testament perspective, uh, to the people in the Old Testament, the whole concept of shalom would be life in good working order, the way that God intended it, is what you're saying, correct? Right. That's correct. I, Let me give you some examples. Let me give you an example out of the Old Testament, and this is um, uh, because because we, we don't think this way, right? So so on your Christmas cards, you, you often have you know, Jesus is the prince of what? Peace, right? Well, see, but Jesus is not the prince of peace. Jesus is not a prince that's going to come back and just keep uh, the countries from fighting with one another, right? Jesus is the prince of shalom. Jesus is the prince that's going to come back and make everything back to the way it was supposed to be. One of the things that we have to kind of get out of our minds as Christians is that salvation is not just a bus ticket, a bus ticket to heaven. You know, salvation is uh, is is more is it embodies much more than that. It's a call for us to help God's redemptive work, even in the here and now. But once again, giving people a taste of what the shalom looks like and what we do in, in our work, and particularly in those four specific areas. Thanks for listening to this podcast. You'll want to check out our website at workingforourfather.com. It's constantly being updated with new content to support you and others in living your faith at work.